Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a comedian, comedy writer, or director comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes, sketches, or scenes, and discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week's guest is Judd Apatow. When you look at all he's done and all he's worked on, it's hard to argue that any one person has had a greater impact on modern comedy than Judd. As a producer and writer, Judd worked on... The Ben Stiller Show, The Liar Sanders Show, The Cable Guy, Freaks and Geeks, Undeclared, Anchorman, Superbad, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Step Brothers, Pineapple Express, Bridesmaids, Girls, Pee Wee's Big Holiday, Popstar, The Big Sick, Love, and Crashing, just to name a few projects. This episode, however, I talked to Judd Apatow, the director. So let's run it down. Judd got his start as a director in 1998, working on The Larry Sanders Show, when Gary Shandling, the star and visionary behind the show, came into his office and told him he's going to direct the next episode. From there, he directed episodes of Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared, but his future debut came in 2005, when he made The 40-Year-Old Virgin with Steve Carell. Then came Knocked Up in 2007. With two successes behind him, Judd pushed himself to get more personal, leading to his 2009 Adam Sandler-starring film about comedy Funny People. Judd kept on moving in that direction with the even more personal film about marriage, 2012's This Is 40. After which, as Judd tells it, he got really busy producing while at the same time he couldn't find a new personal story to tell. Eventually, after spending years working with Amy Schumer developing Trainwreck, he decided to direct it. From there, Judd made a few documentaries, including a tribute to his mentor Gary Shandling. And now, five years after the release of Trainwreck, Judd has his latest offering, The King of Staten Island, a fictionalized version of Pete Davidson's real life. As we discussed in the interview, the film is a bit of a departure for Judd in terms of the world it depicts, the themes it explores, and the balance of drama and comedy. Where Judd has made a career making comedy about the privilege, the King of Staten Island is not filled with people assuming everything will be okay. And that's captured by the scene we're going to play. Coming very early in the movie, this introductory scene features Pete Davidson's character, Scott, hanging out, watching The Purge with his friends Oscar, played by Ricky Velez, Igor, played by Moises Arias, and Richie, played by Lou Wilson. Joining them is their friend Kelsey, who Scott is secretly hugging up with in the movie, played by Belle Pally, and Kelsey's friend Tara, played by Carly Aquilino. Other things you might need to know is Igor is the dancer they refer to, and Oscar is the one that makes the joke at the end of the scene. 
In general, the film shot by Robert Elswit, who is best known as Paul Thomas Anderson's go-to cinematographer, is just best looking by far. The scene specifically is shot in a basement that feels more like a dungeon. And with that, here's a clip from The King of Staten Island, followed by my conversation with its co-writer and director, Judd Apatow. I love this movie. They, they shot this on Staten Island. That's my shit. This movie makes no sense. Why? Why would the government make a purge legal? Clearly to let them blow off some steam. Yeah. That's why you go to the spa. Yeah. Or the therapist. Or get or, your nails done. Or murder some folks. Hmm? And he, come on, guys, I, I brought Tara over so that we could get out of this basement. Let's go out. Let's go dancing. I love dancing. Let's do something. We don't go out. We don't dance. The purge is not enough for you? No. Does anybody else like dancing? Yes, like me. You I do? love dancing. Yes. He loves, he's a really good dancer. What's your favorite move? It's kind of like a shake. A shake. I don't know, I just do whatever the music tells me to do. There's nothing but douchebags at these clubs. I love oh, it here, man. Oh, but come on. You just sit here all day and then smoke weed and jerk each other off. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I've never been jerked off by any of my friends. Me either. I like your tattoos. I knew There's you would, a... right? <gasps> oh, my God. Don't talk to him. That... He, has, he has chlamydia. I had. Oh, my God. Had chlamydia. It's curable. And you introduced me to the girl that gave me chlamydia, so you basically gave you me chlamydia. You assisted the chlamydia. He doesn't have insurance, he can't get the meds. I actually, I actually did some of those. You did? You know, I gotta rep the island. Hey. Wow, island. Staten. SI, you know. Yeah. Looks so good. Thank you. You have a bunch of tattoos also. Yeah. What is that date? Oh, uh, that's uh, the date my dad died. Oh my God, your dad died? I'm so sorry. Don't be. It's fine. It's totally cool. So what happened? Ooh. Okay, you don't no, need to ask. No, no, don't ask no, that. No. It's kind of inappropriate. Uh, he, was a, he was a fireman, so he died in a fire. Oh my God. Yeah, we, yeah, knew. we knew. We don't yeah. like to talk about it. We that's knew. why we don't bring it up. Apologize to Scott. It's the right thing to do. You should say so. Apologize to get out. It's not okay. Scott, um, I just wanted to say that I'm really sorry that I asked about your tattoo. <laughs> what? He doesn't care, it's fine. He doesn't care. <laughs> Look at him, he's laughing so much. I don't care. We talk about his dead dad all the time. <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? Not your dad. <laughs> So I am here with Judd Apatow. Thank you so much for joining me. Of course. Um, so I want to start with Pete Davidson in the, in the summer of 2014. Uh, for me, I remember, you know, I saw him around New York, but I, you know, really clicked when he was first on SNL and he'd come out and immediately felt like everyone knew him already. But can you, you know, walk me through seeing him, realizing this guy's a star? And also, as, as you've seen his rise, what do you think it is about him that is connected with people? Uh, you know, I met him when we were looking for people to cast in Trainwreck. And I asked Amy Schumer, you know, who's funny? Who should I know about? And the first person she showed me was Pete. 
I just looked at some YouTube video of him on some show. And, you know, sometimes you just go, oh, that's the guy. That's the one who's going to be the big star. I, I don't know what accounts for that. I had the same feeling when I saw Sandler for the first time. I had the same feeling when I saw Kristen Wiig on her first episode of Saturday Night Live. Just as a comedy fan, mm-hmm. I thought, oh, that's someone that people are going to really like. That's someone that I like. So we had him do a cameo in the movie. We didn't really have a part for him. We were bummed we didn't have a part for him. But we just placed him in the movie, I think, almost just to say, we knew he was going to be big before anyone. <laughs> so we planted him in our movie. You know, we had Bo Burnham in Funny People. Yeah. And it was the same thing. And we have a lot of those in the movies, just people we like. Nick Kroll is in, you know, get him to the Greek. There's all mm-hmm. these people uh, where sometimes we don't have the largest part, but we just love them and want to, you know, to let people know about them. But also to say, we knew they were great. We didn't have the thing yet, but just mm-hmm. we knew. Uh, and Pete was one of those people. And then after Bill Hader spent, you know, an hour riffing with him and hanging out with him, he, you know, he said to him the next day, I called Lord Michaels and told him he should hire you on the show. So Bill had that instinct right away. And then I bumped into Lord Michaels at a party. And I said, I hear you're looking at our friend Pete. He's a killer. He's so great. And then the next thing you know, he was on Saturday Night Live. What, and what do you think it is about him that's connected to people? Regardless of you who you're like, this guy's got it. But like, you know, you've seen it. It feels like special young people or something about there's just something about this guy. It's hard to say for sure why anybody becomes famous, why anybody, you know, has that magic quality that you can't really define. He has a dark sense of humor. He's, you know, he's he is hilarious, has been hilarious since he was younger than 20, which makes mm-hmm. no sense. He obviously has a very uh, interesting attitude about life. You know, the story of his life is is fascinating and it's also one that makes us all worry about him and and mm-hmm. and hope that he you know heals and and can can you know feel strong so like a lot of rock stars there's charisma there's sex appeal and then you also care about him and you hope he he's going to be okay yeah. and and he's a great guy he's a big a big hearted person, you know, he's a really kind person. The aspect of the movie he was most excited about was being able to hire some of his friends like Ricky Velez and Derek Gaines uh, to be in the movie. And when they would score, he seemed so much more excited than when he scored. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, as I, I've, I've heard you talk about over the years, these people that you find and you, you help break and, 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 and it reminded me a lot of what I actually try to do with a podcast, which is, you know, you become sort of like beguiled by people comedically when you do this enough. And then you just try to figure out the way to convey what you see in these people to an audience. There's a quote that you've used that playwright John Guar, who said all plays are putting somebody in the corner and seeing how they get out of it. You know, what was it about this story? You know, why was this the right corner to put Pete in to showcase sort of what you find so special about him? Well, I, I know that Pete was interested in trying to write something about his relationship with his, his mom and his sister. And so he had kicked around other ideas, you know, about his wanting his mom to be in a relationship. 
I said to him, well, wouldn't that cause a problem? You keep saying like that, that your character would want that, but wouldn't your character not want that? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be the nightmare? And isn't the ultimate nightmare her dating another fireman? And then that started the conversation about, are you interested in exploring everything you've been through and all of the feelings around it and creating a fictional story that's using those real emotions uh, to, you know, to, to find both comedy and drama about what it takes for a family to heal after a tragic event like that. And he was very willing and through the entire process was really courageous about his self exploration and trying to you know, find a way to turn this into, you know, a touching funny movie. Mm-hmm. He never said, look, no, let's not talk about that. That's too weird. That makes me uncomfortable. His whole thing is always that he deals with the world by being an open book. He's never hiding anything at any moment. He, he likes to be as honest as a person can be. And it's funny for me because I feel like Shanling was the opposite of that. Shanling felt like everybody was hiding their true feelings mm-hmm. and everyone was wearing masks and that when people are honest, it's very rare and a big deal. And that's not what Pete is like. Pete is, I'm going to give you the unvarnished truth every second. If I'm feeling great, you're going to feel it. If I'm in hell, you're going to feel it. I'm just going to be open, always. That is such a converse to a lot of the sort of characters you work with. I mean, the the Gary quote you often use is that Larry Sanders will show about people who loved each other, but show business gets in the way. This is sort of the opposite, which is now this is a person who's sort of completely open already. When thinking about this character, what was sort of this the the thing that he had to get through? What was the sort of thing getting in his way if being open isn't sort of exactly it? Yeah, it's not about being open. That's that's true. It's it's about having some altered perceptions as a result of uh, of tragedy that. Mm-hmm. You know, a young person loses his father and isn't sure how to process it. And it raises a lot of questions and false beliefs about the world. You know, Pete used to talk to me about that it was tricky because his dad, on some level, felt like a saint. Mm-hmm. You know, he had made the ultimate sacrifice for other people, but it also made him feel strange about what he could accomplish in his life. And at times that was a a burden to carry, you know, that he could never live up to something like that. And he didn't realize that he doesn't have to, that he, you know, he'll have his own path, but certainly when something terrible like that happens when you're seven, it, you know, it, it it creates a lot of confusion that you, you spend a lot of your life working out. My parents got divorced I'm still working it out. I was 13, 14 years old. It's like it happened yesterday. I mean, it made me neurotic enough to do the things that I've done. Yeah. And I think that it becomes a lifelong quest to heal yourself. And so this movie you know, is about you know, what happens when his mom dates another firefighter. And now he has to confront everything, all his feelings, yeah. all the obstacles to his success in his life. Pete. Uh, and his writing partner, Dave Cyrus, put it that they sort of wrote a 90-page version of the movie that was all jokes, and then you helped them sort of, like, make it into a movie by, like, 
you know, pushing Pete to get deeper about it. And I was always wondering, like, what does that process look like? Do you feel like it's like being a therapist? I mean, you you're open about going to therapy. Do you feel like you've learned like that is the process that you have to sort of work with people? I do feel like the part of the process is exploring your motivations, exploring your history. You know, what 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 happened to someone that makes them have certain problems in their lives that makes them think in a way that might make life more difficult. And we all have those stories. We all have something that went wrong at some point in our childhood that makes us introverts or extroverts or alcoholics or sexaholics or workaholics or afraid to take risks. I mean, everyone has the thing that happened and the result that they're dealing with. And so a lot of the, the process of writing is to have really open conversations and to just say, here's my history. Here's how I've been behaving. And slowly we connect the dots. And because we're trying to figure out how to make it funny and how to create a story where the person might learn something, a lot of the process is what would have to happen to this person for them to get it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, how much of a beating do they have to take to, to see what they're doing, what their pattern is. You know, there's a lot of great self-help books about habits, that we all have these habits that we can't break them. And one aspect is sometimes when we're miserable, we're kind of comfortable in the way that we're miserable. And it's easier to not try anything than it is to break the habit of our misery. And only when life really throws you a curveball do you try new things. And so, you know, we sit for months outlining and talking and researching. And I talked to his, his mom and, and a lot of his friends. And then they went off and wrote a rough 90 page draft. And that was important for me because I wasn't sure how Pete saw himself as a character, but also I wanted to know what his sense of humor was. I, I, I needed uh, Pete and Dave to tell me what they thought was funny. Like, what do you think is funny about Pete? I needed to read their version of Pete scenes Here's how Pete behaves in the world. And it was really helpful. And they wrote a lot of great pages. And then that got me very excited to jump in with them and try to figure out how to make the story work and all the emotions work and have it all, you know, coalesce. Before we get into the specifics of this scene, of the sort of opening basement scene, I want to talk about sort of broadly, you know, as I think of a scene as filling the scene size hole in a script of, Something needs to happen here that does this thing. I guess, what were the things you needed from this scene? And then sort of how did it evolve to have this scene be this scene? Does that make sense? Yes. You know, the scene we're talking about is an early scene in the film where we meet Pete's character, you know, Scott and all his friends. Now, in the original writing uh, of the film, we're in the basement where... Pete and um, Igor and Richie and Oscar are talking and playing video games. And the joke is that they're just smoking pot and selling Xanax to high school kids. And then they say, this sucks, let's do something else. And then you just cut to them in Igor's basement. And they're basically doing the exact same thing just in someone else's basement. And that was something that Pete had talked about, that he spent years in people's you know, finished and unfinished basements doing absolutely nothing. 
And then his, you know, he had friends who would uh, do very low level drug deals. Uh, and it was all pretty lame. And that's part of why in real life, Pete went and started doing stand up comedy in his early high school years. So we knew in the second scene, we wanted there to be uh, Belle Pauly's character, uh, who's supposed to be a, a friend he's known since he was a little kid. And now they're, you know, fooling around. But Pete doesn't want to be in a relationship with her. And it's because he has low self-esteem and he loves her so much that he thinks she can do better. Uh, so we would meet her there and then we would meet uh, her friend. The friend hadn't had never hung out with him before, so she could ask all the questions. And, and that would allow us to find out that his history and to learn that his dad died. Uh, now, when we shoot a scene like this, we have a script, but... I also know I need to get from A to B to C to D and we're going to do the script, but I'm really just going to let this, this fucker fly. I'm, I'm going to really let it go and just see what the chemistry is between all these actors and actresses and, and, and try to shape it as I go. So in a way it's writing and rewriting on its feet, especially with scenes with friends, because it's very hard to capture the real chemistry between friends who've known each other a long time and make each other laugh because if you write a joke in a script and then they rehearse it 10 times, they'll never make each other laugh. So you have to create that space for them to improvise where they actually get each other going. And so we knew there'd be a, a, you know, an opening part where they're watching a movie and we thought it'd be, it'd be funny they're watching The Purge because The Purge was shot on Staten Island. So everyone on Staten Island has a lot of pride in The Purge. And in the script, there was a very long debate about The Purge. And Almost none of that or none of that is in the movie. Uh, but it was a very funny uh, sequence where the women did not understand the rules of the purge. And they tried to explain why a purge makes sense. And and the guys didn't understand. And that went on and on and on. And there was a lot of discussion of which character would be, you know, a killer in a purge and who would be hiding under the bed. And they all just talked about if they would be aggressive or how they would escape having someone kill them. So in the movie, that becomes like, you know, two lines. <laughs> but it was almost the entire scene. Uh, in improvisations, we stumbled uh, into this area where, uh, you know, Carly keeps asking Pete, you know, what his tattoos mean. And we knew we wanted to have a date and she would ask about it. And in rehearsals, we started laughing about that they would get mad at her for asking too personal a question. And they don't know this girl. And so they're really being rough on her. And they're just going, you know, she sucks. Why is she here? She sucks. And, and it would be just her, them destroying her for asking too many questions about his dad dying. And then at some point in the improvs, the, the, someone, you know, says, we're joking. Scott doesn't care if you ask about it. And then Ricky Velez improvised, you know, knock, knock, who's there, not your dad. And in that moment, we were like, oh, okay, so that's the entire scene. Like, we've been waiting the whole movie. We've been waiting two years for someone to think of that joke. 
Because it says everything. It says that Pete's character denies how much pain he's in uh, about the loss of his dad. So his friends all make awful jokes about it because they think it's okay. It also shows that the friends don't know him that well because they don't realize it destroyed him. And so they only make that joke because they believe he's okay. And he's not okay at all. And so then Pete does this forced laugh that lets the audience know, okay, so that's what this movie's about, is that he's not over it. And when you say improvisations, a lot of that is in the rehearsals, right? You sort of write part of the script and then you sort of put it on, then you're rehearsing and you're finding it? Or is that even happening when you're shooting? That happened while we were shooting. So... You know, it, you know, it started as a scene about the purge, and we thought of some of that during auditions where we improvise and early rehearsals, and then, uh, then when we got into the more serious rehearsals, we figured out, oh, it's funny for her to keep asking questions like, oh, what, what, what happened? Tell me, and, and that they would get mad at her for asking, and and then that improvisation in the moment. And that's the definition of why I uh, do improvisation is because I really want moments like that to happen. And I also don't trust that I will think of that joke alone in my house. I, I know I need people like Ricky to feel like they're allowed to make that contribution. And Ricky was so funny that every weekend he would come over to my apartment and help you know me and Dave and Pete punch up the next week's scenes. He was just a big contributor to the movie. You know, in in your, your master class, you talk about characters have different wants and sort of a lot of the comedy or tension in scene can come from the differing wants of people in it. Can you apply that to a scene like this? What do the characters want and how does that sort of move the scene forward? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, part of it is that there's a feeling that they're not going to escape Staten Island. So when you talk about their wants, uh, you know, for some people, they want to escape. So, you know, Belle Polly, who plays Kelsey, you know, she dreams of making Staten Island cool like Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And Igor probably dreams of leaving and going somewhere else. And Oscar likes it. He's just like a, you know, a troubled guy who's going to start getting in more and more trouble. That's uh, Ricky Velez's character. You know, he's clearly drifting towards more serious crime. Uh, and and Bell is probably in love with Scott, but wishes he had his act together more. And then, you know, Scott has a dream of being a tattoo artist. That's what he wants. That has never worked hard enough on it. Probably doesn't believe he can really pull it off. And is just staying stoned to not confront his pain and his lack of belief in himself. Mm -hmm. You you mentioned earlier about the idea of how Gar Gary would talk about masks the people wear. And um, you said in your master class, dialogue is essentially the mask. The people talk, they, people don't say how they feel. They sort of talk the opposite of what they feel. This scene, I think, is really interesting in how it sort of plays with both, which is sort of, as you have a character like Pete, who is sort of really frank about the thing, but he both wants to and doesn't want to talk about it. Is that sort of the line you're trying to walk, which is he wants to, there's a sort of a need for him to express these feelings he has about it, 
but you sort of can't express it in the ways that are actually the way that would be helpful. I think that the character, unlike Pete in real life, you know, swings back and forth from screaming about his pain and wanting to be taken care of and saying he's totally fine. That's, that's what we're seeing. So with his friends, he says he's totally fine with his family. You know, he's, he's, he's displaying more of his troubles. And, and part of that is because it gets him off the hook probably of taking care of things around the house or having to get a, you know, a real job or, you know, he could say, I'm too troubled to do that. Uh, so so he's he's trying to take advantage of both sides of that coin. As you mentioned, she says, what's the date on your arm? And obviously the date isn't 9-11 because I think she would know that date. Um, you know, I imagine there were many discussions about if his dad in the movie was going to die on 9-11. Can you walk me through sort of how you landed that it made more sense for the character in the movie to have it be he died in a fire that wasn't 9-11 related? We debated that a lot. I mean, the story is fictional, so... We weren't trying to do Pete Davidson's life story. We were trying to use, you know, some of his emotional life to tell a truthful story that related to things that he is working through and deals with. So the question was, should you make it 9-11? And there were a lot of people who told me, you you should, you definitely should. And I felt like if Pete's character, Scott, said, I'm so depressed about 9-11, that whoever he was talking to would say, yeah, me too. We all are. And so having it not be 9-11, having it be that his dad died fighting a different fire, a hotel fire, then he has his own grief. He's in his own bubble. And not everyone understands him. And, and you know, 9-11 is so universal. It, it affected everybody's life. It, it, it changed the world. and. And so I thought the reaction to him and his problems would have to be through that filter. And I didn't want to use that filter. And I also think 9-11 is such a giant subject. I didn't even think a movie like this could hold it all. Because every person in the movie would have a very complex relationship with it. And, and I, I did want to boil it down. But I also thought the, the audience knows that we're really talking about 9-11. I don't need it to be 9-11 because you know that's what we're talking about. You could see it in Pete's eyes. Yeah. So I feel like all the weight of it is there without without saying it. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about shooting it. And for those who haven't seen it yet, you know, I'll say I think the movie is gorgeous, in, in my opinion. I think it's your best looking movie. You worked with Paul Thomas Anderson, cinematographer Robert Elswit. Can you talk about lighting and shooting this basement scene and how you approached it and how generally you approach a scene like this? Well, Robert Elswit is, you know, you know a genius you know, he shot you know, the Bourne Identity and you know mission. Some of the Mission Impossible uh, movies. I don't know if he did one or more than one. And the Night of and Michael Clayton and Syriana and on and on and on. Big I comedies. I, I wanted to hire him, you know, in, in the past, uh, but he was someone that was never available, and, and by some miracle. Another movie fell through. And the second I heard it, I, I, I called him and, and begged to get a meeting with him. You know, we, we looked at a bunch of movies before we started and said, you know, we want this to feel like a, you know, a 1970s movie, like The Last Detail or Coming Home or a Sidney Lumet movie. 
And obviously I wanted to look like Michael Clayton and a lot of, of Bob's other amazing work. And a big part of working with Bob is that he is the camera operator. Mm. So a lot of the reason why it's great other than, you know, what he does with, with the lighting is he's following the action with his camera and the energy of the scene comes from his instinct of where to be at any given moment. You know, sometimes we have two cameras. Uh, there have been times where we're working with three cameras, but it's all guided by his choices as the A camera operator. Now in the past, I would lock all the cameras down because I was always worried if someone made a great joke, that, that there would be a chance that if the cameras were moving, I would miss the joke. And that was my highest priority. But with this movie, my highest priority was the drama of this movie. And I thought, I'm going to risk losing tons of jokes to get this photograph correctly. And if Bob's on the wrong person to make a certain type of joke land, there'll be others. That's not the most important part of this. And then I got into editing and he was never on the wrong person. Ever. There wasn't one thing in this entire movie where I went, oh man, Bob was on, on Lou there. Why was he on Lou? It just did not, <laughs> did not happen. Uh, so that's what's amazing about the scene like this. It's all Bob's instincts. One question about Pete's performance in the scene, which is really interesting, which is the way he laughs at the knock-knock joke. I imagine you maybe had different versions of that laugh. And the one you pick is weird. I mean, it's like a strange, it's, I don't know, it's hard to describe. Can you talk about that? moment and what you liked about that sort of take of it it's not that take of it that's the only take of it it's just an improvisation it's a moment that just happened uh organically in their improv even to this day i don't know if that's a joke that ricky had ever said to him before or not yeah so he says knock knock who's there not your dad and then pete does this insane laugh like he likes the joke but we could tell it couldn't hurt him more all at the same time and he gets this wild look in his eyes and then Ricky and everyone's laughing like it's fine and then it clearly is not fine and it's a really troubling (laughs) demented moment Uh, but it only happened because of the instincts of all the actors and actresses and how they stayed in the scene Uh, and it launches the entire movie and we didn't even try to do it again we just said i think i don't think we could make that happen again i don't think we can fake whatever just happened there um i feel like i've heard you talk about your editing process which is sort of you'll get along cut together and you'll play it for a small group of friends and trusted collaborators and then you'll take their recommendations and make a cut that you'll to a slightly larger group and maybe a slightly larger one and then you know you you test the hell out of these things with audiences you know can you think of how this scene changed through that? Can you think of any specific notes you got? Well, the order of the of the first few scenes of the movie changed quite a bit. My wife, Leslie Mann, saw the movie, and I don't want to give away the movie, but it opens with Pete driving in his car, and it's kind of a scary sequence. And it was about 20 minutes into the movie and my wife saw the movie and she said, I think that should start the movie. And I'm like, that doesn't work. That, I, you don't understand what I'm doing here. And I was completely dismissive of the idea because I was locked into a certain story progression. And then I showed a bunch of people the movie 
and and we were close to done, but there was something wrong in the first act. And you know, I showed Pete Holmes and Jonah Hill and Jake Kasdan. You know, I, I'm just begging all my friends to watch and tell me what they think. And my editor, uh, three editors, uh, Jay Cassidy, Bill Kerr, and Brian Olds. And Jay Cassidy showed it to Bradley Cooper. And again, everyone keep, com- keep coming back to this. There's something wrong in the first act. And then one day I'm like, let's just put that car scene at the beginning. That's not going to work, but let's just see what it looks like. And the entire first act completely worked. It changed everything about the first act. It changed how you interpreted every moment, how you felt about Pete, your level of concern for Pete. And and as she usually is, Leslie was correct. Um, as we're talking about editing, uh, I want to get into it. We can talk about movie runtime. I feel like you are as aware as anyone that people make jokes about your movies are however not too long. And I relate it because I feel like I also have this desire for my interviews to be as long as possible. I don't know if you've read the book about the five love languages. Yes, of course. Oh, 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 I've read all the books. I've also read How to Be an Artist by Jerry Saltz. My whole desk here is nothing but self-help books. So for those listening who haven't, um, it's a book by Gary Chapman that outlines five ways to express and experience love between romantic partners, which includes words of affirmation, gifts, acts of service, physical touch, and quality time, which I bring up to see, do you feel like you express and experience love? Do you feel like it's quality time? And and is the length of your movies, the way you communicate your affection for the characters and the audience? I think that... There's a moment in editing where you realize I could make it shorter so people can feel like they saw a short movie, but I will be sacrificing certain moments that are important to develop the characters and the story. So how much do I care about people's internal clocks? So, you know, some people say, oh, I I want my movies to end in an hour and 40 minutes. And I know that it's really painful for them to sit for 220. Do I care? And the truth is, I do a little bit, but if I'm going to hurt the movie just to satisfy your lack of attention span, I'm just not going to hurt the movie. So I'm always trying to make it as short as I can, but usually it's 10 or 15 minutes longer than most people probably would want. But at the same time, I always think, but yet you'll sit and watch six hours of Narcos in a row, so go fuck yourself. <laughs> That's where I always land. Like, you know, people will watch 10 hours of the Michael Jordan documentary. And if Harry Potter's three hours and 35 minutes, no one bitches. The Avengers is three hours and whatever. So usually while when I'm editing, I look at the times of a lot of things in the culture and from the past. And I give myself permission to just do what I feel is correct for that story. And I, and you know, I certainly have made some hard decisions to lose things that I, I didn't want to lose to get it shorter. I, I, I definitely am up all night worrying about it and thinking about it. But I've also noticed that when these things hit TV and streaming, no one thinks they're too long. They only think it's too long when they're in a movie theater and they have to pee. It's kind of like you're putting this movie on the same scale as these Avengers movies or this Harry Potter movie, these sort of fantastical st- tales and you're like this story about a person sort of understanding and figuring out how to get over his his dad dying 
is a thing that demands to be long. You're you are it's like a painter who who paints a large canvas. You're like, this is an important story. In the same way that we decide something about why the Infinity Wars is an important story. Well, certainly it's not more important to blow up a city than it is to deal with people's feelings. <laughs> I, uh, I, so I don't mind, uh, you know, the concept of, of length. I mean, anyone can debate because it's also personal taste. You know, for a lot of people, if they're watching the Avengers, I mean, they wish it was six hours. They wish it was 25 hours. They, they're like, let me take a couple of breaks and I, I'll stay here forever. And I, I feel that way uh, for movies like that and all sorts of movies. I just feel like I'm fine at, at, at two hours, two and a half hours uh, with the human stories. I mean, some of the most fun I've ever had is watching three Sopranos in a row. Uh, and that's really all I'm doing is, is yeah. trying to give you a little more character and a little more story. That doesn't mean that I'm not wrong a fair amount of the time. Sometimes I'll get asked to trim a movie because it doesn't fit in the time frame of a television presentation of it so they'll say oh we're going to show funny people on fx you got to cut 11 minutes and you have no choice and then suddenly okay here's the cut i wouldn't make and then sometimes i make the cut and i think i might have just made it better (laughs) Uh, but then there are scenes that you cut for time and you miss them there was a great scene in funny people near the end of the movie where adam and seth get into a big fight and they're not friends anymore and then adam goes back to work and we cut to what he's shooting, and he's shooting a hot dog eating competition. And he's the star, and the scene is him eating hot dogs. And then you hear cut, and I walk on, and I'm playing the director. And I'm asking Adam if he can do all this in one shot. I need you to eat four hot dogs in one long shot. And Adam's like, can't you just do it in coverage? And then I can take a bite and spit it out every take. And I'm like, Adam, it would be so much better, like a great like Scorsese shot at the nightclub, if I could just see you swallow four hot dogs. And Adam's like, I, I just got over leukemia. You want me to eat four hot dogs? And, and I'm begging him. I'm like, how about this? One take. I won't do a second take. Can you do it once? And, it, and it's him saying no. And it was such a weird, funny scene. But that late in the movie, two hours and ten minutes into the movie, uh, we didn't have room to stop for three minutes to do this scene. And I miss it so much. I mean, no one will watch it. It's on the DVD extras. But so I will make those cuts and then regret them for years. When we did the 40 year old version, I put out a, a director's cut. And I, I, I was so new at directing that I made the director's cut 17 minutes longer. And most people think that's the movie. Like most people watched it on DVD and they watched this like two hour and 10 minute version of the 40 year old version with this big long sequence with Stormy Daniels. And I mean, there's all sorts of crazy stuff in it that wasn't in the movie. A really long Kevin Hart, Romany, Romany Malco fight. <laughs> The, the the other thing I want to talk about with editing is is tone. And you've talked about like you're in a big crowd pleaser mode and sometimes you're not. And, you know, with Sen Island, I was thinking about, um, you know, you described it as most of your movies are comedy with drama in it. And this felt more like a drama with comedy in it. But the other thing I was thinking about as I rewatched Knocked Up was this feels like that first scene in Knocked Up where it's Seth and all of his guys smoking weed and having fun and like jumping into the pool. But completely different 
completely tonally different. Well, I think it knocked up. It, it was a little closer to my experience as a young person in Hollywood, which is privileged white dudes whose parents are clearly paying their bills with dreams of starting some sort of porn website where you could see celebrities naked. And it's all very indulgent and childish. And that was the point of it. Uh, the point was Seth's character, he wants to have a few years that are just completely immature and stupid. And he wants to enjoy his early 20s with his buddies. And then he gets someone pregnant and he can't do it anymore. And can he rise to the challenge of being a good person and someone who can take on the responsibility in some healthy way and maybe have a relationship? This is different because there's a sense of hopelessness about it, that they're in this basement. They've clearly been there too long. They don't really have options and they're selling drugs to children. And it's sad. So even though there's some jokes there and it has that echo of knocked up type buddies, it's a more pathetic version of it. And what I was trying to plant in it also was that his friends were willing to take him down with them. They, they are manipulating him into more and more dangerous crime. They're not looking out for him and saying, you shouldn't do this. I don't want you to get in trouble. They're saying, you better help us or you're not a good friend. Yeah. You better help us go rob this pharmacy. And so even though it seems lighthearted, it, it, it's actually going to take him to total personal destruction. Partly because of the scene that precedes it, the, the Leslie's idea, which is, but there's a menace to their friendships and the first act of the movie that sort of is new and uncomfortable. Like you, it's almost like they're just messing around, but you don't, there's something about it that is uneasy. I guess sort of the bigger question I have is, you know, a lot of your, your early movies are all sort of set in, in West LA and in a certain world. And you talk about, um, Partly it was you wanted to get home sooner, but also this is the world you knew. And though Trainwreck is New York, it is, you know, still fairly comfortable in New York. This is set in a more a more working class world. How did you approach that as one, an outsider? And also sort of what did you want to be saying about, you know, this place and also sort of this generation of young people there? I spent a lot of time talking to Pete about Staten Island you know, the great parts, the difficult parts, you know, there are amazing people there who work really hard. A lot of people who work for the city, you know, nurses and firemen and cops. Uh, you know, there's, there's a fair amount of poverty there. There's also, you know, a, you know, you know, a, a large group of people who are middle class probably more like lower middle class. And so there's a lot happening there. You know, for some people, it's their stability. They live on Staten Island. Their life is very simple. They work really hard and they're just great people. And then there's also poverty there and people who don't believe they can do anything amazing with their lives. They've stopped dreaming. And Pete's character, Semi has a dream. He wants to be a tattoo artist, but he feels like maybe I'm too ADD to ever do this well. I don't know how it even works. How do you practice? Like he, he, he's too spaced out in stone to even figure out the steps to accomplish this goal. So I think we were trying to show 
a lot of different facets. You have these hardworking people in an Italian restaurant and, you know, there are people like, you know, Pete's mom were very noble and working hard and clearly his father did the same thing. But you also have this generation of kids who probably grew up on, you know, too much social media, an opioid uh, nightmare, uh, you know, who are struggling. But then you have Maud Apatow, my daughter, playing Pete's sister, who's dealt with all the trauma in her life by being a hyper achiever and just working really hard to get out of there and get to, to college. So I, I wanted to show a lot of facets. Of it. We'll be right back with more Judd Apatow. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. And we're back with Judd Apatow. So, um, it, you know, in the period after this is 40 through sort of after train wreck, um, you seem to be having a bit of internal struggle about what you should do and if you should direct a movie, if it's not a personal idea. You told one interviewer, who's it for? Is it for me? Is it for the audience? Is it just to sort of keep in the game? Uh, you mentioned considering taking another year where you just read books. Um, I know you're working on plays. Um, and just in general, you discussed about, uh, you know, difficulty writing personal projects these last few years, either because of busyness not sure if you still have something to say if turning 50 is as interesting as turning 40. I also imagine stand-up scratched a certain personal expression itch. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure you probably at least started developing this film, not planning to direct it. That said, you, you, you have talked about 
how you make movies to figure out how you feel about something. Now that you're on, on the other side of this, as this is, you know, the sixth movie you directed and the fifth you co-wrote and directed, you know, how did it reveal itself to be a personal movie? What did you learn you wanted to say? I probably don't know yet. I think I need a little more time to figure that out. Uh, I I had thought about writing about sacrifice for a long time. I don't know how that occurred to me. I just thought I'm probably repeating myself. My themes are probably all the same. There's a lot of coming of age stories you know, problems in romance, parenting issues. How do I not write the same movie again? So I worked with a friend on a movie about soldiers returning from Afghanistan and had a really good experience writing that, but I I ultimately felt like I didn't understand it enough yet. I might return to it, but I thought, I don't, I don't know if, if I've completely figured this out and gotten intimate enough with this material. And then I had an interesting idea about people getting out of prison, what that experience is like when they get out of prison. I did a lot of research on it and it was actually very uh, painful. It was, the justice system is very cruel. And when you spend a lot of time learning more about it, 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 it hurts. I mean, you feel for these people, if you have any compassion at all, it's somewhat devastating what our country does to people. Obviously, a lot of people are in prison and should be in prison and deserve to be there, but, but there's a cruelty to it that I couldn't figure out how to break a, a story about it. It just troubled me, and, I, it, and there was no part that felt like it was going to head comedic or even dramatic. It just took me down, quite honestly. Uh, but I knew I want to, I want to write about sacrifice because it sounds like the last thing Judd would ever write about. <laughs> and, and then when Pete and I started talking about this, it took me a while to realize, Oh, I think I'm writing it right now with Pete and Dave because it is about sacrifice his father made and how, uh, it affected Pete's family. And then as I got to know people in the firefighting community, I realized that you know, there are people, their entire life is helping other people. They're not trying to make movies. They're not trying to get ahead or win awards. They wake up every day and all they think about is how can I come through for someone else and save them or help them? And I found that to be very moving. And there are definitely, sometimes there's a great cost to that. And we talk in the movie about how the world needs heroes, but it also sometimes you know, leaves wreckage in its wake. You know? uh, and that subject matter uh, was very challenging to write about. And I'm really proud of the movie. I think it talks about some issues that people don't bother to pay attention to. There are these people out there. And now we see it in the pandemic with nurses and EMT people and policemen, and firemen, but also people at grocery stores or anyone that is doing a normal job that has to, encounter a lot of people, they're taking a, a, a very great personal risk to be there for other people. And so I, in a lot of ways, I feel like the movie is about them. Uh, and 
that's one of the reasons why I wanted it to come out is I thought, what am I going to hold on to this movie for a year? This is, this needs to be seen now because it is a, in a lot of ways a tribute to those people. You know, last year I did this big ranking of every Adam Sandler movie. Uh, I believe you, you saw it. It was, it was like 20,000 words long. And, you know, at the oh, time. Oh, I read it. Let me tell you. I read it. <laughs> did you agree? I mean, you probably thought funny people shouldn't have been higher, but. <laughs> did I agree? Um, I just enjoyed that you put that much time into it. I think that as, you know, we, we all spend this much time alone and it can be very depressing and we all feel like we're in some weird limbo people like adam sandler who spent their entire lives trying to make us deliriously happy uh are valued in a way uh that i find really great Uh, there are so many people that have said to me you know i'm just i'm holding up and i i watch four adam sandler movies today and that is why adam makes all these movies you know when we made funny people he said to me uh Everyone's going to want me to only make movies like this from now on. And they're going to be mad at me when I don't. But they don't realize the hardest thing in the world is to keep finding new ways to make people laugh their asses off. And we need it. And, and it, it's a real, it's a real gift. And I love that Adam can do uncut gems and then, you know, do the ridiculous six. It, in a lot of ways, it's a perfect career and what the audience needs all of it. Adam's movies feels like he has an idea of what he wants to say in the movie, and then he makes the movie to be like, family's important, or work's important, or whatever combination of it. Where your movies feel like you are figuring it out through the movie, as we talked about before. Like, it feels like they are searching for meaning opposed to telling you this is what it is. Does does that resonate with you? Do you feel like your movies opposed to here's a hard lesson. It's a search that you're sort of doing with your audience. I, I think each one is different. Sometimes I do have a real sense of what I'm trying to say. And it, the whole thing's a little cleaner. And in other movies, I'm really trying to show the complexity of life. Bill Burr's character in the movie is both a good guy and probably not that good a guy. You know, he's divorced and we, we indicate that it's complicated how bad a guy he was, or maybe, maybe they just burnt out their marriage, or maybe he was terrible to this person, but he's human and he's trying to do better with Marissa Tomei's character. And, and I like that gray area. There are certain comedies where we, things are simpler. And that's what we like about certain movies. That's not the, the point of them. Sometimes when I'm making my movies, I'm, you know, I, I try to read a lot of interviews with, John Cassavetes and Robert Altman and, and work up the courage to have a lot of gray areas in, in the films. And sometimes I don't know what the movie was really about till later. I, you know, I'll think it was one thing and I'll find out later. I, I was just talking to Mindy Kaling. Uh, I was doing an interview with, with, with her for 826, the, the charity. And she said, I noticed that in all your movies, there's a character who's really stuck. And I never would have thought of the word stuck. But then I thought, I think maybe she's right. I never think about it in those terms that like they're in a rut and something needs to happen to them to get them out of the rut. You could say that about the couple in This is 40. You could say it about Amy Schumer's life in Trainwreck or where Pete's at in this movie. So every once in a while, someone notices the thing that you're doing unconsciously yeah. uh, and and calls it out. But that's what's fun about it. I never thought about that before until 
Jim Carrey said to me many years ago, I feel like movies appear in my life and I make them because it, there's something in this ex- the experience of making this movie that I need to know or learn. I need to be making that movie right now. He always talked about it with the Truman Show. He, you know, he got very famous and it was a very strange experience for the whole world to know who he was. And, and he said the Truman Show was something he really related to. Having just had that happen to to him, the sense that everyone's watching you, yeah. uh, and and life feels like maybe it's not even real, and I, I think that that happens with all, all the movies you work on. And, and you know, I was just thinking about how important comedy was for you, be it breaking people that you think are talented or the the interviews you did in the in your book Sick in the Head. Um, you know, you talk about this movie about what would happen if Pete didn't find comedy. Do you ever think about what would happen if you didn't find comedy? I truly can't even imagine it in any any way. Um, so I, it, it's hard. It's hard to know. It was always there. I guess, I guess a a better question is, you must see what it's like. You must see in other people what. Comedy is to you what X is for them. Does that make sense? Like you're like, oh, other people, it's, you know, uh, I think like your brother became a rabbi, even though you weren't necessarily raised religious. It's or just anyone. Everyone has the thing that becomes their whatever. But yours is comedy. Does it feel like comedy is your whatever this is? I think so. And I think that's what Funny People is about, which is a moment of wondering if it was the right choice, <laughs> when you dedicate yourself to something, are you doing it for healthy reasons or unhealthy reasons? Are you doing it for your ego or, you know, the love of creating things that make people happy? I don't think about it as much anymore. For me, mentally, I like to think that my career is over and these are things that happen afterwards. You know, this is this is my Michael Jordan on the Washington Wizards period. It's interesting. What is the period that you feel like is the end and then everything else was is it this is 40 and then everything afterwards? I don't know. I just I like I don't I don't even have a, a line of demarcation. I just I'd I like to take the pressure off of it and go. I did enough and now I'll make this one. It's like it's all like it's like late, late era Bob Dylan albums. Not that I'm comparing myself to Bob Dylan, but you know, he puts out albums every once in a while. And sometimes people like him and sometimes people go like, damn, he just cranked out a great one there. That might be one of the best ones. But you always think that his whole career was, you know, the, you know, the 60s and 70s and everything else seems to be other stuff at the end. Uh, and that puts me in a place to not feel so much pressure. You know, I don't like to feel connected to the other era because then I feel like I'm in the rhythm of that era. I like to think like it's over. Should I try another one? And and, and I, I, in a way, I used I've done that even since Freaks and Geeks. You know, when we did Freaks and Geeks, I thought, well, that came out great, and at least it at least it worked once. Yeah. And and that freed me up to take chances. So I'm always, you know, I, I have such a critical voice in my head. I have to trick it to make it go away. And that's one way I trick it is to just say, this isn't even part of my career. My career is over. This is just another thing I did 
while no one was paying attention to me. You wrote Walk Hard. You helped write Don't Mess With The Zohan. You produce Popstar. And it feels like there are less capital C comedies sort of out there. Hard comedy, hard joke comedies. And someone asked you, it was like, oh, is that like, would they ever make Airplane now? And you're like, well, you know, he said if there, there are people, if there aren't those movies being made, there aren't people that are smart enough and funny enough. But, you know, like for a lot of people, Popstar was a movie that was as funny as what is your current feeling about hard comedies, the state of them, your relationship to them? I, I, it really depends on having the idea that cracks you up. It's nice to take a break from soul searching and just try to make something crazy funny. So when Jake Kazan told me his idea to make fun of music biopics, I laughed so hard and I was like, Jake, this is the best idea ever. I, I could talk about this forever. And we wrote it over the phone, most of it, at midnight. You know, my family would go to sleep and we just laugh on the phone and watch those movies and crack up. And so it pulled us into it because it made us laugh. Um, so I'm open to those ideas if I have one. And I'm open to an emotional idea if I have one. I'm, I, I, could, I can get just as passionate about Walk Hard as I can about The King of Staten Island. Uh, it, it, I really just follow a good idea. And it, it's a fun challenge to go like, how funny can you be? If you look at Airplane as say one of the funniest movies of all time, uh, you know, or something about Mary, it, it, it's, it's really a great challenge to go, can I tear the house down? Uh, and a scary challenge. It's so hard to do. Uh, I haven't been in that head for a while, although there are certain episodes, you know, of, you know, crashing or love or girls where we said, let's go for it on this one. You know, there's a sequence someone mentioned the other day in love where Paul Russ wants to have sex and uh, Gillian says no. And he goes to masturbate on his phone. He accidentally sets off the Bluetooth. So the porno is playing all around the house. <laughs> and uh, and someone mentioned it on Twitter the other day, and I had so much pride of having, <laughs> having thought of that really dirty, stupid idea. I, I mean, one of my biggest moments of pride is just th thinking of Steve Carell peeing with a boner at the beginning of the Hill Virgin. So you do have one side of your personality that loves exploring the human condition, and another part that's like, oh man. That boner peeing scene is the, my proudest moment. So I, I, I hope to do another one. Now that you mention it, I, I feel like maybe I <laughs> Oh, should. good. That's part of why I mentioned it. You know, when you guys made the announcement that, you know, The King of Staten Island will be out on VOD, you know, I saw a few people mention that this felt like a, a, a nail in the coffin of a type of theatrical comedy experience, which is, this is a thing that you've been seeing a lot over the last few years where the only comedies that were coming out in theaters were big action comedy hybrids, things that felt like it could play overseas and smaller comedies, even either just hard, hard joke comedies or character driven stuff was finding stuff on the streaming surfaces, including Adam Sandler, you know, making a deal. And it felt like in many ways you were an exception to a lot of it. And but you've also mentioned that you find you see how it is frustrating to see movies in the theater where you, you've talked about, 
people are chewing during the climax. I I generally have always lived in the idea that if a comedy is great, it's going to do well in the movie theater. There's not a long list of amazing comedies that didn't do pretty well. Uh, there are exceptions, but sometimes that's a marketing mistake. You know, when people pull it off, I, I think people go. And I was excited for this movie to test that because I feel like, well, Trainwreck did well. The Big Sick did well. And if we do our job, I, I think that there's an audience for it. You know, there's a bigger issue for me, which is the studios want to create movies that can make a billion dollars. <laughs> In the old days, we would make a movie for 20. And if it made 40, we were huge hits. And now it's like, yeah, but the Avengers made a billion. And suddenly, if you make a movie that made 60 million or 80 million, it's like, sorry, I, I failed you. Uh, and, and that is, you know, a, a way that the business is moving because there's so much money if you can make it work in Russia also. And I don't want to think about Russia. I don't want to think about China. I don't want to think about anybody. I just want to tell the story. But in terms of visually minded movies or big epic or action movies, you know, they, they can appeal like that around the world. And a lot of those movies are incredible. Uh, it doesn't mean they're not as good. It's just, you know, these human stories don't always travel uh, in such a big way. That being said, if someone made The Hangover 4 right now, it would make a billion dollars. I have, I have no doubt. I've thought of calling Todd Phillips and saying, Todd, let me make Hangover 4. The world wants it so badly. So I don't know. I don't know if that, that, that story has been written yet. I, I don't have that list of the great 10 something about Mary's that didn't work. If something about Mary came out today, it would make $300 million. So we don't know. And then in terms of our movie, we just felt like let's either hold on to it for a really long time or get it to people. And I, I, I couldn't imagine keeping it in my draw for a year. I, and it had nothing really to do with the idea of comedies and movie theaters. It was just, this would make people happy right now. <laughs> Why? I only made it for that reason. Uh, so let's let's get it out there. And the next one we'll, we'll do for the movie theater, we'll, we'll test it then. Watching all your movies back to back, all the movies you directed, and there is a sort of semiotics-esque way in which your movies end the same way, which is you start with small two people and you sort of zoom out in some ways to larger groups of people. And I will go through them for people who haven't also know this was sort of train wreck. It's I'm sorry with 40 year old virgin. That's them in bed. And you sort of cut to the big group of people and then knocked up. It's them in the car and you sort of like pan out. You sort of see more people in their cars and the beach. Um, and then funny people, it's them at the table and you pan out and then you see everyone in the grocery store. This is 40. It's them at a concert. You pan out, you see all the other people at the concert uh train wreck it's them lying on the mat and then you sort of pan out and you see the dancers around them in the entire basketball arena and i won't spoil the ending of this but suffice it to say it's two people and then you the camera doesn't pan but it sort of moves out to sort of put them in the world um why you know there are certain things that have some meaning to you and you may not even understand what it is and doesn't even matter it's like when you think about david lynch and he doesn't even think it matters to figure that out. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point of David Lynch movies. Here's some dreamlike images that I came up with. And I don't know what it means. Do you know what it means? 
Uh, you know, for me, I feel like if I had to break it down, I would think we're all in this together. We all have our stories. We all need to be good to each other. We're all trying to evolve. We all want to find love and connection and heal in some way. And their story is no different than anyone else's story. And especially at this time, we realize if we're not there for each other, we're all going down. We all have to make the sacrifice. We all have to uh, be aware that it doesn't matter if you live here or South Korea or South America. We're, we're all interconnected. And, you know, the political part of me feels like, you know, that's the lesson of this moment. It isn't make America great. We're supposed to all help each other in the world. You know, we're trying to fix, you know, the earth and we have to do that together. One country can't do it. One can't, country can't fix the pandemic. Like we want, we have this illusion that we're separated. It's like a Buddhist idea. We're not separate. Yeah. That's, that's the illusion that we're separate. And maybe on some unconscious level, I can't help but to always point that out. <laughs> you know, I was rewatching the first episode of Larry Sanders where you get a writing credit on. I mean, the nature of how TV is written, you write everything together, you write nothing together, Gary rewrites so much of it, but there, there was a line in it that I wanted to bring up that it's very possible that Gary wrote, which is, you know what, the episode is about Larry's trying to write a movie and possibly consider a career as a screenwriter and leaving the show, and then um, people don't know this, but he has a meeting with the studio, and he does not like how the meeting goes. But the episode ends with Artie, played by Rip Torn, telling Larry, for four decades, I've heard people talk about how shitty TV is and how great movies are. Fuck them. Do what you're best at. That's what makes you a success. As you've now essentially have had four decades in the business, you started in the 80s, this is now the 20s. You know, how do you feel about this quote? I I think it's just important to express yourself. As I get older, I I I I tried to be more willing to change mediums. So I went back and did stand up, and still do stand up. I made documentaries about the Abbott brothers and Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry for Thirty for Thirty and Gary. I'm about to start another one. So it really isn't about movies or TV. It's just being open to go where. Uh, you know, uh, some you know passion lies, and it doesn't matter because I did think about that. Like, wow, I haven't made a movie for the theater for a long time, but I did make the documentary about Gary. And you know, when all is said and done, there's a chance that's going to be better than all the movies I made. I mean, it might be way better than all the movies I made. It yeah. certainly says everything I want to say uh, in a way that maybe I have trouble saying in the movies. But maybe that's not true. You know, who, who knows? And, you know, there are ideas in everything that I've done that I hope connect with people. And, you know, in my mind, I could tell you an episode of Girls that I think is better than almost everything else I've done. <laughs> uh, and may, people may not think much about that episode, but I do. Uh, and, and I think there's certain story elements and ideas in it, you know, that I'm really proud that we were able to explore. So it's easy for me if it just, it, it all doesn't matter. It just, it just, 
you know, it doesn't matter at all. I remember years ago, I pitched Phil Rosenthal an idea for an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond. And I had nothing going on in my career. I was really bored and I wasn't sure what to do. And I loved Everybody Loves Raymond. So I kept pitching him ideas. And he would always say, we, we have something similar. And then wouldn't, wouldn't even entertain kicking it around with me. And I pitched him this idea about a guy who, uh, you know, about that Raymond uh, has always talked about a girlfriend. And then they bump into her and it turns out that they were a, a much more intense couple than he had always told his wife. He made like it wasn't a big deal, but they were actually engaged. And this was the woman that destroyed him in his young life. And Phil's like, yeah, we, we, we got something like that. Uh, but then years later, we did it on Love with Vanessa Bayer playing that character. And it was kind of a heavy episode about the fact that she's not really doing well in life. And it went to some deep, dark places. And, you know, it's 28 minutes, but maybe it's better than half the movies I've made. <laughs> Michael Lewin directed that episode. Uh, and, uh, and so it all has some value. And, you know, for some people, they like this one better than that one. And everyone has a different opinion. Some people rather watch Walk Hard than the one that means the most to me emotionally. So yeah. who knows? Who's to judge? Other people will judge. Yeah. <laughs> so that sound means it's time for our final segment, which is a laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laughing round. Okay. Is there a joke or a scene, so a joke in a movie or a joke in stand-up that you've seen that you wish you could steal? Like steal in a way like, it's a different dimension. Everything's exactly the same, but this joke that you saw is now yours. It's in whatever way you want it to be. I have thousands of those, but just to give you one, uh, it would be the scene with Shirley MacLaine and Peter Sellers and being there where she's trying to seduce him and he's watching some children's show and then an exercise show on TV and he's just mirroring what's on the TV and she thinks that it's sexual. She doesn't know what he's doing. And then next thing you know, I think she starts masturbating because he's telling her things to do, but it's really things he's seeing on the TV. And it's a pretty perfect, really inspired comedy sequence, like every moment in, in being there. But that's one out of hundreds and thousands. You've written material in different forms for a lot of people over the years, you've punched up things and people don't know that you punched them up. Um, I wanted to give you opportunity to claim things that you've written that you're really proud of in things that you're not credited for. Is there a joke from an Adam Sandler movie? You've probably punched up Jim Carrey movies, Ben Stiller movies. Can you think of things that... Uh, well, you know, you're not supposed to, in comedy, claim credit for things. Got it. Uh, but... I'll do it now <laughs> just for fun. In terms of as a producer, mm -hmm. uh, every once in a while I have an instinct that something's funny and tell people it deserves more time. So when we did Anchorman, they, you know, there were these scenes with Vince Vaughn, you know, where, uh, you know, they would almost have a fight with another anchor team. 
And, you know, they talked about doing some sort of fight with them. And I think I decided to do it like, what if it was a really big fight? <laughs> That's all I thought of. I had no yeah, responsibility yeah. for any detail of it other, other than that. But it was like a really big fight. You know, there's, there's a bunch of those. Tim Hurley had the joke in Happy Gilmore where Adam fights with the person he's with during a celebrity golf match. And it was like one sentence mm-hmm. in a montage. And it was a similar thing. Like, that seems funny. That should be a whole sequence. Yeah, they, yeah. You know, and that's, <laughs> you know, sometimes that's where, you know, my producing instinct comes in. Like, that's funny. Let's just do that for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you say a joke you wrote for Barack Obama? Well, the joke I wrote with John Lovett years ago that made me laugh, and I'm I'm probably quoting it wrong, was people say I don't spend enough time with the Republicans, and they say, you know, why don't you go uh, get a beer with Mitch McConnell? You get a beer with Mitch McConnell. That's <laughs> <laughs> I love that I love love that joke. Um, this last one, you know, is there a joke or a scene that you think is so funny that you, um, tried it on a lot of audiences or you've tried to put in different things? It might be a stand up joke or it might be just a scene in a movie that you kept on trying to push through and no audience would sort of get enough on board with it. And you have to go to your grave being like, that was funny. Everyone was wrong. Um, that happens all the time. I mean, that's why I, the first cuts are always almost four hours because I just fail. Half the half of the stuff I shoot completely fails. There was a sequence in the 40-year-old virgin. It's such a funny idea that makes no sense at all. Is Steve Carell so afraid to have sex that he has these weird, nervous fantasies that if he starts having sex, He's going to change. And he says, I, just, I don't want to change. How is it, is it going to change me? And then you cut to how he thinks he's going to change, which is basically he turns into like a drug dealing pimp. And he's really mean. I don't know if he was also in a gang. And it, it made no sense. And we shot it. It was so crazy. And we were laughing so hard. And I don't even know if we ever showed an audience. We, we may have noticed in editing that, that this is not going to work at all. <laughs> um, that's great. That's it. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for bearing with us. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch The King of Staten Island on Video On Demand on June 12th. Follow Judd on social media at Judd Apatow. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Art Chung, and Camila Salazar. Gotham Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Box Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with Eric Andre. Have a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. 
In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.